You're listening to Secrets of Data Analytics Leaders. Thank you, everyone, for joining our latest episode of Secrets of Data Analytics Leaders. This is today's host, Kevin Petrie, VP of Research here at Eckerson Group. Fast casual restaurants offer a pretty fascinating microcosm of the economic forces, the turbulent forces confronting enterprises today, and the pivotal role that data plays in helping them maintain competitive advantage. As we all know and lived, COVID prompted customers to start ordering a lot of Chipotle burritos, Shake Shack milkshakes, and Burgers bagels for home delivery. And this trend continues in 2022. Supply chain disruptions, meanwhile, are forcing fast casual restaurants to make some fast pivots between suppliers in order to keep their shelves stocked. And the market continues to grow as these companies win new customers, add locations, and expand delivery partnerships. So these three industry trends, home delivery, supply chain disruptions, and market expansion, all depend on govern accurate data to describe entities such as orders, ingredients, and locations. Data quality and master data management therefore play a more pivotal role than ever in the success of fast casual restaurants. Master data management, also known as MDM, streamlines operations and assists data governance by reconciling disparate data records into a golden record and source of truth. If you're looking for an ideal case study for how MDM drives enterprise reinvention, agility, and growth, this is it. I'm excited for our conversation today. We're going to speak with an industry expert that helps fast casual restaurants handle turbulent forces like these with effective strategies for managing data and especially master data. Matt Zingariello is Vice President of Data Strategy Services with Kiris. Kiris is a global consultancy that helps enterprises use data assets to optimize their digital strategies and customer experience. Matt leads a team that provides industry-specific advisory and implementation services to help enterprises address challenges such as data governance and MDM. Kiris is a partner of Samarki, whose intelligent data hub software helps enterprises govern and manage master data, as well as reference data, data quality, enrichment, and workflows. Samarki sponsored this podcast. In our podcast, we're gonna define data quality and MDM as part of data governance. We'll also explore why enterprises need data quality and MDM and how they can craft effective data quality and MDM strategies with a focus on fast casual restaurants as case study. So Matt, thanks for joining us today. For starters, perhaps you can introduce yourself, your background and your role at Curis. Sure, and thanks a lot for having me, Kevin. I guess you could say that the care and feeding of data has been the central theme of my career these many years. <laughs> Whether it's visualizing it, analyzing it, collecting it, centralizing it, or sharing it, data has been you know, a core asset of businesses for the last couple of decades, at least. So that's what I've been focused on. Currently, I manage a practice, as you mentioned, that's focused on data-related advisory and strategy work. Essentially, we work with clients who are I guess, not yet sure of how best to approach their data situation and need a guiding hand. Very good. So I think this will be a great conversation today as we've all lived at a consumer level and consume the products of the companies that we're talking about. So perhaps you can tell us about the primary business and data challenges facing fast casual restaurants today. When you first sure. sit down with a client in this industry segment, what do they tell you? Well, basically. 
Fast casual restaurants are a complex animal. I think if I try to, to simplify it a little bit, you could think of them as having four main challenges in their day-to-day -day business. So for one thing, they are public facing. So they have all the usual challenges of dealing with large numbers of people, large numbers of guests. That means managing their preferences, managing the experience, making sure that they're completely satisfied with every touch point that they have with the fast casual dining companies. Next, they're digital. So layered on top of the fact that they're public facing is the fact that it can be either in-person or virtual in terms of the relationship and the interaction. So going digital in your interaction with fast casual dining establishments was accelerating before COVID and really hit escape velocity once the pandemic hit and was pretty much an experiment in going 100% remote overnight. So that's sort of the second big one. Then they have the normal supply chain and logistics challenges of anyone else, perhaps a little bit more complicated. They have physical locations, they have ingredients they need to source, ship, deliver within certain time constraints. These things have shelf lives. They have complex workforces to manage with lots of different skills. And then they need to invoice and deliver things just like the rest of us. So there is that. And then finally, the food industry specifically is a regulated industry or highly regulated industry, as you might imagine. So that's also something they need to be very careful about. So it's interesting that the supply chain dynamic in particular, I would think is particularly acute for these companies. It My is. son has been hunting in vain for a PlayStation 5 and accepts that he can't find one. And that's more of a, you know, what he learns from his smartphone when he looks at it. But when someone walks into a Chipotle or a Bruegel's Bagels, they really do expect everything that's on that menu to be available in real time. Exactly. So, and just that simple statement that you made implies a lot of behind the scenes coordination. So ultimately, I, the consumer, should only see things that I could actually order or I'm going to be disappointed. So you should show me those things based on their availability, which traces all the way back to ingredients. So and staff and locations. So if all of that data is integrated in processes that run these operations and based off of a centralized, trusted source of truth, such as on a platform like Samarki, that is much easier to achieve. So if we roll up our sleeves and look at master data, data governance, and MDM, what are the resulting requirements that this business environment creates? The resulting requirement when you think, first of all, of what master data is, it's data that is core to the main business processes of the company. So these are almost always either people of some sort, whether they are customers or suppliers, places such as restaurants in this case, but they could also be factories, they could also be supply depots, things like that. And then they are objects, whether those are ingredients, spare parts, whatever. So the changes that they've had to make are mainly in two areas. One is technical in the form of breaking down the silos and islands of information that most companies operate with, which are just the legacy of the normal functions of industry, such as, you know, you got to have a billing department, 
that billing department's got to have its own data. You've got to have a logistics department that also needs some of the same data. You've got to have a customer satisfaction department that's got even more of the same data. So you've got those islands of information almost by default, and you need a technical platform to overcome them. That's the first big area. The second big area is more organizational and process oriented. So you also have to be able to involve business with things that are traditionally considered IT. Like business has to be aware of the importance of data, what good data looks like and how to use it. And IT also needs to step out of the server room and think in terms of what is business really looking for, what's important to them, and then calibrate accordingly when they propose solutions. So those are two pretty big changes, I think, in in the way that companies need to think about this kind of a challenge. And so if you kind of walk through a process of how they're going to make those changes, looking at people and process and technology, what's a typical life cycle? We're talking a a year, a month, something in between. They identify the problem, they put together a plan and then execute on it. Maybe you can just kind of walk us through that. Sure. So nothing is, we never do, you know, these big bang projects anymore where, you know, we get your requirements and, you know, we'll talk to you again in a year. Uh, that, <laughs> that doesn't work anymore. Things change just too much in the meantime. That's sort of the, yeah. uh, the NASA, NASA mentality, leave no stone unturned. Basically what happens, and I, and I will get to answer your question eventually. No, this is good. What happens is we'll sketch out a broad desired future state where, where you want to get to as dictated by your business expectations or challenges. But once that's done, we'll, we'll break it up into much more manageable, small value generating projects that take us step by step to that bigger picture while preserving the flexibility to, to change course if we need to, to make minor adjustments or even major adjustments. And the timeline for those projects is usually around three months. In three months, we can get a lot done. We can show value specifically. And by that, I mean, we can push something out beyond the project team into the larger population of the company and show actual changes and improvements. So whether it's finding a central place where all of the ingredient information resides or all of the restaurant information or all of the employee information, and beyond that, that it solves a specific challenge. So if we go with the employees, I before was unable to quickly find all of the staff of a certain level that are available when I'm opening a new restaurant. Well, we can produce within a few months, two to three months, literally, a build on Samarki that will provide that information and allow you to answer that specific question. So we're never gonna just build it because it's the right thing to do. We're gonna build it because it's the right thing to do and it's answering a specific challenge and getting that one off your plate. Then we'll move on to the next. Okay. And so what is a a typical, this is a, a dangerous word in this context, but a representative data architecture look like for these enterprises? And where does this Samarki Intelligent Data Hub fit in? That's a really interesting question, actually. So when we think about, because you're tying in all the things that I've just said, so about the islands of information (laughs) and the different silos and things like that, those silos each have a piece of the truth with a big 
with a capital T. Yep. What we're what we're trying to do in Samarki is first of all build a model that captures all the attributes of whatever the type of master data we're trying to master is. So if it's customer, I want to know all of the demographic information, all, all of the patterns of buying that I've seen with them, what are their favorite products, all of the things about the customer. Well, that information, do they pay on time? Whatever it is, all of that information resides typically in many of these silos that I've mentioned before. Some of it's in their billing history, some of it's in their order history, some of it's in their just if they've ever lodged a complaint or given praise or done online reviews, all of that complete picture of the person in this example resides in lots of different places. But the first thing we do is to build, as you're saying, an architecture of what we would like to have without any actual data. This is all metadata. So information about the information. And that in terms of architecture looks a lot like a relational diagram. There are interrelations between entities within that architecture. And once we've got sort of everything that's on our wish list to know about customer, restaurant, or ingredient, then we need to populate that model, which we're now calling the golden model, because it has everything from everywhere that we could possibly want. Now we need to populate that with actual data from the sources that we're operating with within the company. So Samarki provides, first of all, the first thing of the many that it provides is a great platform for hosting that model. And what's so great about it is that it's, first of all, technically very robust. You can build any kind of model as complex or simple as you want. And when the data is loaded in, you can access that model, whether you're a technical person in IT or whether you are the least technical business person out there, it, it doesn't matter. There's an access that's right for you. And the great thing about that is that it allows you, the business person, to consult that data without having to know anything about IT or software or anything like that. So that's a huge win right there. The next thing is the data that's coming in from these different sources is sometimes conflicting with each other. It's overlapping, it's duplicated, it's incomplete or partially complete. So Marky excels at setting up the rules that get the best piece, you know, the best attributes from the different sources and uniting them in that one golden model that I mentioned. So you're taking the best elements from your fragmented silos and pulling them into one single model. And that is the model that you're then going to consult, whether you're IT or business. And beyond consult, you can make changes directly into the model. So... I know we probably have another question about Samarki coming up, but it has a lot of features that allow you to not only centralize this data, but also manage it directly. Very cool stuff. So I'm picturing a master repository of metadata, but also data that IT is going to manage. And then you've got the various business units um, that can access that central repository and even amend it over time. But there's sort of a central source of truth that IT is managing for metadata and data. Is that correct? I think that's fair. The underlying platform, it's of course, it, it's a technical product sure. that IT would typically own in the sense of implementing it, maintaining it. But then 
again, we're trying to do here is blur the borderlines between business and IT so that they both function together. IT is, you know, especially where data is concerned, is a strategic differentiator. It's no longer back office. So it has a place at the table, but in exchange, we expect IT now to bring us competitive differentiators, whereas before it was keep the lights on, do it cheaply. Now it's how are you going to help us beat the competition? Well, that's a whole different kind of question. And it's a whole different kind of uh, CIO that you're looking at now. So that's where tools, sort of new generation tools like Samarki come in because they enable that kind of style of working or that kind of way of working. So for example, you're going to have a lot of automation that goes on thanks to the initial configuration. And that's what our teams do. They'll come in, they'll build that repository, they'll populate it, and then they'll build all of the rules that are known that we will work with you to find out when you have this kind of a conflict, how do you resolve it? When you have this kind of duplication, which one wins? Um, how confident do you want that match to be? If it's less than 80% confident, I need someone to check it and it's not a match. If it's above 90, you don't need to run it by me, just go ahead. And we define what exactly a 90% match looks like. Then for those things that cannot be automated, there are workflows. I, Samarki, not confident that I can figure this one, this one, and this one out. It's This one's going to go to you. This one's going to go to her. This one's going to go to him. And those people are going to look at it with their human intelligence and make some calls and figure it out then they can go straight into Samarki if they want to and actually make the change manually for those very few things that we haven't been able to automate out. So tell us about best practices we can learn from successful clients in this segment. If I had to pick one thing that has made a big difference, it's broadening your definition of MDM to include data governance. So if you think just one step beyond if you've done everything that I just described with the automation and the building of the model and the connecting of the sources, and now you know clean, solid data is being produced, you still want a team whose job it is to keep an eye on that, to monitor the matching, to monitor the, uh, the deduplication, to monitor any changes on the business side. The market itself is going to keep changing. Therefore, the data needs of the business are going to change with it. So you can't assume that you set, you know, a once and done kind of approach. I set up my platform, everything's automated, right, Matt? So now it's going to keep working for the next 10 years by itself, right? Not exactly. You have incremental changes over the years, more or less, depending on how in flux your industry is or how many COVID type events you have during those 10 years, but there will be changes and a good data governance team tracks those changes within, you know, either sees them coming or tracks them as soon as they hit, comes up with a proposed change or evolution in perhaps an evolution in the model, perhaps you're adding a new source, perhaps you've acquired a whole other company with its own set of systems that immediately duplicate everything you've got. You need a governance team to sort of manage the normal change of business and that's what uh, the companies that have been successful all have that in common, that they include data governance with MDM work. Okay, good. And then so the, the flip of that question is, what are some cases of mistakes or lessons learned? I'm guessing part of the answer is organizations that viewed MB, MDM as a discrete problem, standalone problem to address. But maybe you could expand on that and see if there are other 
lead pitfalls to avoid. Absolutely. So yes, where if I can say that the winners include data governance in their projects, those who don't have as much success did not do that. But I think a more common, perhaps a better illustration of a lesson learned situation, if you will, is, and this doesn't just apply to, to MDM, it's clients who assume that doing a project will guarantee that it will be adopted by the users, whatever the nation is, Samarki, some uh, other kind of platform. If you uh, build it, they will come. Exactly. So you can't assume that. And here you're dealing with a very human element. These are people who are going to use it. People have emotions. People have fears. People like or do not like surprises. They expect some level of respect and they interpret that in different ways. So that's the art and science of change management. You need to bring the people along with the project. I'm not saying you have to share all the intimate details, but you do have to tell them that there is a project, that it's coming, here's why it's coming, here's how it's going to help you, and make sure that they feel fully involved and that when it does come, if it's a new platform for them, which it might very well be, that they're trained up for it and ready to be productive and feel fully empowered. That's Then you minimize the almost inevitable dip in productivity that you have when anything new comes. People are fired up. They're like, this is really going to help me, and they're behind it. We don't always realize this, but people usually have an option not to use the fancy new platform you've implemented, unfortunately, and can go back to very manual ways just because that's what they're comfortable with, and that's what you want to avoid. You don't want them pushing back against you. You want them embracing this, this new change. And so... In this context, what are the titles of those people that you need to use hearts and minds you need to win over in terms of adoption? So anyone who works with the data, I guess, is an easy answer. But typically, it's the heads of departments that are heavily data dependent. So I'm thinking of marketing, chief marketing officers, digital transformation, chief digital officers is another one and all of their immediate direct reports. Also, obviously you need strong sponsorship in a project like this. One of the reasons that my team, which is an advisory team, actually does implementation in this specific case, meaning MDM, is that there is no MDM project that's not also strategic. You're touching the data, the lifeblood of your major business processes. So if you're doing anything that impacts that, it's by definition strategic. And so the the people who are impacted are all the C-levels, pretty much, because they're each head of one of these silos that runs on this data. So they need to be fully on board with the idea of more collaboration cross-silo, at least where data is concerned. Not talking about their necessarily their fundamental responsibilities, but where the data is concerned, they need to understand that this is a very shared resource that nobody owns the data so i on some other podcast i can we can go over all the funny political stories and wars that have erupted over who owns the data another you know fun aspect of being a human here working in the business world but there is that as well how do you divvy up the responsibilities and the governance of the data so we find we provide strategic consulting services to company with data analytics strategies, and we find that analytics center of excellence can be a good way to foster adoption of new tools and common best practices for different practitioners. And that can apply to 
a range of different technologies and tools. I'm curious whether you find that organizational model, some sort of center of excellence is a, a viable approach here. I do. We also work with centers of excellence. I, I'm not saying that they're mutually exclusive with data governance and you could under some scenarios even sort of merge or combine the two or have both functions within the same team, whatever you want to label it. We have found more cases of, we found more specific requests around centers of excellence in situations where the tools are going into a lot of different hands and suddenly a lot of people have more power. So like a self-service analytics tool, whereas before everybody was off in their own corner working in Excel, suddenly you give them access to centralized data and a self-service data tool. That's a lot of new capability. I was saying power, but it's a lot of new ability all of a sudden. And what you can have then is almost a victim of your own success situation where people start producing tons of repetitive or redundant or overlapping reports with their fancy new self-service tools. There, a center of excellence can be a good idea to help people to be more productive. So if I say, I need to build a new report on this because there is nothing out there. Well, the center of excellence can say, actually, there is something that is a 90% the same as what you're going to do. You can start off at the 90% mark and just change it a little bit to meet your needs. And you've gotten it, you know, done in two hours rather than a day. Same thing with uh, workflow tools such as Alteryx. People start building those things and you get just workflows all over the place fighting with each other. The benefit of Samarki is that it's a good ecosystem. It's very flexible, but it plays very, very nicely with data governance organizations and the different roles and responsibilities that you have. So you can have your data governance team with, again, roles, processes, policies, responsibilities, all clearly documented, and you can give those people matching responsibilities within Samarki. So that's where that synergy comes with those two. Very cool. I'm struck as we talk through this that there are more similarities than differences between the fast casual restaurant segment and the rest of the Fortune 2000. A lot of very common themes here. And I would think that most of the best practices and lessons learned that we're talking about apply equally to other types of companies. What makes fast casual particularly interesting is it's something that as consumers, we all live. And it's something that because of massive COVID disruptions has particularly acute challenges now and going forward. Curious what your thoughts are there. So if we're gonna zoom out to the Fortune 2000 level. I guess yeah. I could say looking over the last couple of years as a provider of uh, professional services, I would say that the what's distinguished those who have thrived through COVID has been the ability to retain their agility to make significant changes in their ways of working quickly. I would say that was true before. I guess no one saw COVID coming. And when it came, Everybody reacted in different ways and were impacted in different ways. Those that did well among our clients are those who were already kind of prepared for turning on a dime. By that, I mean prioritizing certain kinds of products because tastes have changed, making do with different kinds of inputs because of supply chain disruptions and seeing what they could do with that. 
reorganizing relationships with logistics provider, changing the way they interact with their clients or targeting suddenly shifting segments of clients. The common denominator among all these things that I just said is good control over your data and reliable data. So that's again where something like Samarki comes into play in a big way. It's not the only thing. You also have to have the right kind of culture that is okay with change or is open to changing quickly. You have to have the internal processes in place. You have to have the properly centralized or decentralized model to be able to capture the need for change, react to it, analyze it in the right quarters, and then implement the change. So these, this, you know, the company has to be working uh, reasonably well anyway, but solid, centralized, clean, available data is a major pillar of that structure. I decide if I was going to go with leg of the stool or pillar of the structure, but it's definitely one of the things without which the center will not hold. Let's put it that way. And you don't want it to topple over, whether it's a pillar or a stool. Uh, this is great stuff. I really have enjoyed this conversation. So Matt, I think we can wrap up. Are there other questions that I should ask you on this very interesting topic? I think you you covered most of the big ones. Fast casual in particular is just a really fascinating microcosm because it's a high bar to meet. You have to keep people, so people in the sense of CPG kind of people, mass public with all of the diverging, unpredictable tastes and desires and requirements that they have. You have to keep them happy while doing a very non-negligible amount of just business as usual with a lot of moving parts. You're supplying things, perhaps mostly locally because of the food content. You're building physical structures in the forms of your restaurants. You're staffing them. You're managing them. So you've got real estate. You've got financial management. You've got food and logistics challenges. And then you've got massive numbers of people to deal with both in person and online. And those are two different disciplines again. So it's kind of a proving ground. I feel like if you can do it in fast, casual dining, you can probably do it in anything, but be proven wrong there. So many aspects of technology, and I'm writing a blog on this right now as it applies to cloud data analytics, need to strike this balance between standardizing things to maintain stability, but allowing for customization to be agile. And you gotta always strike that balance between standard and custom and stable and agile. Sounds like this is an example of that as well. I think it is. Great. Okay. Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. If you want more content from business intelligence to data management to data science, browse to the Eckerson Group website at eckerson.com.